Hello, welcome. You're listening to Feed, Play, Love, a bite-sized parenting podcast, a place you can find advice, understanding and support as you care for your small humans. I'm Siobhan Hunt. Self-regulation is the practice of identifying your emotions so that you can manage them better. I struggle with this as an adult, so I imagine toddlers would find it impossible. However, we all need to start somewhere, and small humans with big emotions need it just as much as we do. Dr. Laura Jana is a paediatrician and the author of The Toddler Brain. Hi, Laura. Welcome to Feed, Play, Love. Oh, it's great to join you. Why is self-regulation important even for toddlers? Well, and it's interesting you say that because a lot of people don't always make that connection, but it's it's really, it's important for all of us. The reason, and I always say some people as adults have developed better self-regulatory skills than others, but the reason I think there's so much attention paid to toddlerhood is because that's actually when we start to see the most rapid rate of development of the skills that involve self-regulation. So we basically are transitioning in toddlerhood from a time when children aren't expected to have too much in the way of self-regulatory skills over the course of a few years to when they really are expected to have them. That's It's sort of a window of opportunity to really help kids learn those skills as opposed to, for example, inappropriately expecting of, of, of a two-year-old to be able to control themselves well. Which is probably the moment when toddlers start having tantrums, right? Parents are always quite concerned or confused or frustrated with toddler tantrums, um, which may be when parents start to say, oh, we've got to get a handle on this and have those expectations of kids, do you think? Yeah. And expectations is really the key word in what you just said, because here's the thing. If you think about tantrums, tantrums are a lack of self-control, right? You want something, you don't get it. You just throw a fit right? And as an adult, that doesn't serve you very well. But it's really, it it boils down to impulse control. And what I like to tell parents to start with from this expectation standpoint is saying, there are lots of examples of toddlerhood that have to do with a lack of impulse control. I don't really care. It matters from like an outward standpoint, but I don't really care whether it's hitting, crying, laying on the floor, throwing a fit, throwing a block across the room, throwing a tantrum. All of those things are a lack of impulse control, where you stop, you think through your actions, you use your words, you think of how someone else might feel, all those things that we want kids to do. The expectation part of that is that we know that that skill has its most rapid rate of development between the ages of three and five, which, if you're tracking along in terms of ages, means that when they're two... It's not that we can't help them work on it or start to kind of model it and teach it and talk about it, but to expect it of a two-year-old is really going to be, first of all, a cause for, um, you know, butting heads with your child, but second of all, misplaced anger or frustration. I always say it's it's the same as you wouldn't want to get angry with a two-year-old who doesn't tie their shoes because we know that's just not developmentally where they're at. How do we start teaching them, given we know that they're not quite ready yet, not quite capable of employing that sort of self-regulation, self-reflection on their behavior? How do we start to introduce this idea to them? Well, you know, a lot of, and this is a lot of the work I do. It's what I write about in the toddler brain. It's a lot of, of sort of my area of focus. 
which is how do you break this down into a day-to-day practical on the ground kind of approach to it? It's one thing to talk about the academics of it. But, you know, the first thing, and it's kind of a good general rule of parenting, I'm sure we've talked about it several times before, which is that you model what you want to see your children do. Because what we do know, and I mean, it's it's fun to say it, is do as I say and not as I do is not a good approach to any form of parenting or any challenge of parenting. <laughs> yes. But it's very much true here. So that if, for example, you're an adult who's a little bit prone to getting very upset, losing your cool, throwing something, right? And then you calm down. You're modeling kind of perhaps behavior that maybe you don't want your toddler to see, but you should probably think about what you're showing them. And then it's, I, I, I really like the approach of narrating to children things that we might take for granted or we don't actually think about. Sort of like when you learn how to ride a bicycle, you don't necessarily think through all the steps of it. But if you stop and, and, you know, talk, think about what a child has to go to, like acknowledging that they want something, acknowledging that they're frustrated that they can't have it, stopping to say, but if you take it from your friend and then what are they going to think, you know, how are they going to feel? That kind of narration of all the little nuts and bolts of what we're talking about is how you start to help kids understand it. Again, with the understanding that they're not going to master it right away, but that's where they really get lots of time and opportunity to practice it and to see it in action. I love that part about role modeling because I think that is the hardest thing of parenting is to, it actually forces us to grow up in ways that we haven't yet potentially grown up or to face things that we find difficult. And emotional self-regulation can be challenging for parents when the proverbial is hitting the fan and uh, (laughs) when your toddler is pushing all those red buttons. Um, Could you give me an example how we might model our own self-regulation to kids in a good way, as opposed to narrating it for them? How do we narrate it for ourselves? So we are very much on the same wavelength because I actually was just thinking I can share a really kind of concrete example with you. Um, And it has to do with this idea. So first of all, sort of in a general sense with a lot of things of parenthood, most people can relate to the sense that that something's frustrating or challenging or it's been a long, tough day. And you think, OK, just stop. Don't react. Just take a deep breath and now deal with whatever it is that your toddler needs from yours, what they're doing. There's something actually really concretely valuable about that sort of take a deep breath reaction. Um, and, and, you know, we see it for adults, certainly in a more formal sense in things like mindfulness and meditation. But we also see it more formally coming into the early childhood space with children as young as toddlers, where we start to see things like belly breathing and activities where you have children stop and breathe in through their nose and out through their mouths. And again, not to get it all sort of scientific on people, but you know, some of the work that I do is I, I get really excited about the fact that the neuroscience now, our understanding of how babies' brains develop and how young children's neurons are connecting, we now have a deeper understanding of what happens when you do things like that sort of grounded sense of taking a deep breath. If you think, you know, we're talking about emotional self-regulation, when we talk about the area of the brain that has to do with impulsive behaviors and really sort of emotional like knee-jerk reactions, we're talking about in part the part of the brain called the amygdala. And the amygdala is, you know, it serves a useful purpose that you've got some reactions. You just run with them before you stop and think them through. What counters that, that the part of the brain that says, stop, think through your actions. What's the wisest choice? What do you think the outcome is going to be if you do this or if you do that? 
That part of the brain is called the prefrontal cortex. That is where impulse control develops and where it lies. When you have your amygdala activated, right, when you have your amygdala, like, you know, your impulsive behaviors going on, it actually shuts down the prefrontal cortex to stop things through your actions. So that's where if you say to, and even when I've said it to my teenagers, what were you thinking? And I'm like, oh, wait, <laughs> you weren't because it was an impulsive behavior, which means your executive function skills weren't kicking in. Impulse control is one of the core aspects of executive function skills. So taking a deep breath grounds you. It kind of calms down the amygdala, right? Mm. Take a deep breath, gives you time to focus, takes away from the sort of out of control impulsive aspects and lets the other part of your brain kick back in again. So that's where some of these sort of physical activities that we see really gaining in popularity and, and then being shown to be effective make good sense because you're helping kids redirect from the part of the brain that is just the impulsive part to the part of the brain where they then between the ages of three and five have a significant amount of development take place, including impulse control, emotional self-regulation, all those things that we really want kids to develop because it serves them well for the rest of their lives. And I should probably should add there that it doesn't just happen between three and five, does it? Like we're talking long road trajectory here. Yes, exactly. No, it's not just between the ages of three and five. In fact, when I speak to audiences, I can, I'm always reminded if I forget to mention this, I'm always reminded by somebody looking really dejected in the audience, like, oh no. And I know what they're thinking is my nine-year-old or my 13-year-old does not have good you know, self-control. What I tell people is most rapid rate of development between the ages of three and five, but not expected to be fully developed until the early, and in some cases now we're seeing mid-20s. Excellent. So that's where when I reference <laughs> teenagers, for example, we actually see a period of time during adolescence when that darn amygdala, right, that's like your foot on the gas, just go do things, that kind of turns up a bit and the executive function skills kind of lose ground a little bit. So you see the impulsive behavior return again in adolescence. But, but those early childhood years is where you really have an opportunity to model, to teach you know, sort of good practices to narrate the things, because that's where you're going to see a lot of the core foundational development of executive function skills. I saw on Instagram only this week, a, um, I think it was a pediatrician, a sort of role-playing emotional self-regulation for toddlers, which I thought is probably a more pleasant way and less difficult way to do it than when you, you yourself are in an aroused state of anger. But she was using a peanut butter jar and was pretending like she couldn't open it and getting really frustrated. And she was narrating the experience of being frustrated and sort of talking through how she could deal with this peanut butter jar. I'm not saying every parent has time to do that, but would you suggest that's a, another way of role modeling self-regulation? Well, absolutely. And here's the thing, you know, I have to be very cautious because when I give a lot of parenting advice to people, what I don't want them to think is here's 25 more things to add to your busy day of yes. being the parent of a toddler. But if you think about what happens when a toddler is very frustrated with something, you know, analogous to you can't get a jar open, you know, that the parent's modeling, that really kind of takes up a lot of your time, whether you like it or not. <laughs> and by by narrating, that's not adding more time. It's shifting from a stressful, frustrating experience 
to a much more calm learning experience for the child, but for you as well. And so to your point, this is where I was talking about narration. So it sounds like this was an example of where we do it, we kind of go, okay, you kind of internal voice tells you to calm down, think about it, what could you do differently? How's this? What's well, not that big a deal? But instead of thinking it to yourself, you say it out loud. And then you show, okay, I'm just going to put this down for a minute. Now let me think about, we'll see well, how else could we handle this. Let's think of some other things and we'll try them and see. That simple narration, which really doesn't take any more time, but at least it's a little bit more peaceful than sort of the distraught, emotional, impulsive stuff, is really very beneficial to your child. And you can do it throughout the day without it being tiring. And, and again, it's really valuable to young kids because they learn the best from both seeing you and, you know, with parents as first and, and most important teachers. It's really valuable to do that. The example you made earlier about breathing is really interesting to me because as a young woman in my 20s, I had really bad anxiety. And one of the um, best treatments was to learn how to breathe properly and to calm down all of that adrenaline running through my body. And I never believed in that process. I always thought as if something that simple can help such a big problem. But fast forward several years, I read a book all about the science behind breathing. And I realized that A, I was making it worse by not believing in it. Of course, it's not going to work if you don't believe in it. But B, the amount of science behind simply learning to breathe deeply is overwhelming. And so it makes me think that we need to learn how to breathe properly ourselves and believe in that process when we're demonstrating it to our kids. Because the amount of times we've probably said, look, just take a few deep breaths and then you'll be okay. And in their head, the kids are going, that's not going to work. I am seeing red right now. You are, you're describing some of the challenges I've had over the years because I get engaged in campaigns and efforts to educate on things, whether it's, you know, washing your hands pre-pandemic, you know, trying to convince people to wash their hands and brush their teeth, these simple things that have really big impact mm. in, in light of the fact that we're all looking for the shiny new technology, you know, infused next big thing. And to remind ourselves that some of these things, some really simple things that we can do have really big impacts. So you are describing that. And again, I'm right there with you. I mean, I, I come from, you know, a background and an upbringing, very sort of hardcore medical academic family and, you know, training and things. What intrigued me the most about, you know, getting into this whole area of early brain and child development mixed with parenting, which I say is the practical application, is that you're taking now hard science, stuff that people have an easier way of believing in than what you, you know, and you are not alone as saying, I thought, yeah, right. Like, that's not for me. I need something real here, right? Like I, whether I need medication, I need something. Realizing now that the hard science now supports these things that seem sort of soft and warm and fuzzy and not sure we believed in them is really changing not only the way we look at, you know, toddler behavior and early brain and child development, but things around mental health and mental wellness, around things like social emotional skills, which really weren't even talked about before. And now, you know, I carry this all the way into adulthood, make up two thirds of the skills most valued in today's workforce, like in the world of work. And so you see this shift and the value placed on it the good news for parents is there's nothing I'm going to tell you you have to go out and buy, right? Because 
you have the ability to, first of all, if, if it's not one of your strengths, you can think about it and work on it because it makes you more functional in today's world. But you now have the ability to help develop that for your child. No formal curriculum, no formal purchases of anything. And it's a really powerful skill to have and to, and to develop in your child. Laura, thank you so much for your time today. Oh, it's always a pleasure to join you. I look forward to it. That's Dr. Laura Jana. She's the author of The Toddler Brain, and I'll put a link to her website in the notes of this episode. I'm Siobhan Hunt. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please rate and review us so we can reach and help even more parents. And if you have a topic you'd like me to cover, send your email to feedplaylove at theparentbrand.com.au. See you next time.